Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Paul Golden, author of the book, Litigating Constructive Trusts, The Last Resort in Fighting Inequity and Inequity. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. You pronounced uh, every word very well. <laughs> Iniquity and inequity could, you know, be a trip up even for for listeners. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. Could you tell people a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Sure. I've been um, a litigator for the past 25 years at, at one firm. I've, I've just moved to a new firm, by the way, called uh, Coffee Modica Omira LLP in uh, White Plains, But in my previous firm, I did a lot of litigation, a lot of real estate litigation, a lot of litigation between brothers and sisters, fathers and sons, etc. And um, an issue that came up all the time was constructive trusts. And it's always a pleasure to see family members fighting each other like crazy because that's how I made my money. So Succession was a must-watch for you? <laughs> That's right. I suppose it was, yes. It's just amazing sometimes to see how, how family members will, will fight like crazy over things. Um, and then sometimes I, I deal with my client who has a, you know, a certain kind of face, and then you, you hear about the evil brother. And then like after a year, you finally see him in the deposition, and it's like my client's twin brother. And I think, oh, my God, you're, you're fighting against him? How could you? But... Yes, that's what happens. You know, there's no one you can get to hate as much as someone in your own family, I've learned. Yeah, you wrote a uh, passage in the book. I'm going to read your own words back to you so that the listeners can can benefit. Traitorous partners, gold-digging girlfriends, old ladies being tricked out of repairing a farewell and plain old murder. These have been and will continue to be the subjects of constructive trusts. The facts in some constructive trust cases are so outrageous one often feels like a voyeur, but without the shame. That's a tremendous paragraph. And I will admit, Paul, I came to this book having no idea what a constructive trust was. And when I said the word constructive trust to people, they didn't immediately go, ooh, juicy cases. So for the people who don't know what a constructive trust is um, and why we're so excited about talking about it, can you please tell people why they should be interested in constructive trusts? Sure. So basically, a constructive trust is something of, of last resort when all of the other traditional kind of forms of, of getting relief fail in one way, shape, form, or another. If the situation is right, you can get a constructive trust. A constructive trust, basically, it's I'm trying to think of the fastest way of saying it. The fastest way of explaining it would be to compare it to um, an express trust. An express trust is one in which there's a fiduciary who is in charge of certain property for the beneficiary's sake. And it's set up in writing and, and planned out ahead of time. A constructive trust is something that's set up by the judge. The judge feels like one person ripped off or took advantage of another person to a certain degree took away some property from that person in a certain manner. And therefore, the person who has the property, in effect, is acting as a trustee. And then there have, right away, he has to give it right back to the, uh, the person who, who uh, it was taken from. It's a little bit complicated to say orally if you just give a, a strict definition like that. So it's sometimes easier just to 
uh, give examples. You brought up King Lear in the in the book, and because this is summer Shakespeare season, uh, I would love to hear you process through like King Lear as an example, um, how a constructive trust could help that situation or be proposed uh, to be created by a judge? Well, that would be a a bit of a tough one. He did give his property uh, to his daughters. And if we were going to, if he was going to try to go to trial on that one, he would have to try to claim um, that he'd get certain things he would have no trouble with. Well, let me give you some of the, at least in New York, what, what traditional elements are. Um, it was once described to me in a, in a bar exam class uh, as, as teacup, T-C-U-P. There has to be a transfer. There has to be a confidential relationship. There has to be an unjust enrichment. And there has to be a promise. Um, that's the basics of New York. As, as my book gets into it, not all the, the states follow New York's example. If we're going to use King Lear, I suppose he did certainly transfer his, uh, his property over to his daughter's. There was a confidential relationship, this, this very close relationship between him and his daughters. One might say that there was an unjust enrichment because they didn't really do anything to deserve all that property and all that land. In that one, what may be lacking is a promise. Uh, they did not promise to give it back to him, but in the right situation, it could be an implied promise. But uh, thank you so much for putting me on the spot there. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, I, yeah, <laughs> apologies. I, I didn't even say I had read King Lear, but you just assumed I had. You were the one who put it in your book, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I found so fascinating was your explanation of how a constructive trust works goes against so much common wisdom, and I'm doing a little bit of a sarcasm quote around wisdom, uh, shared in, say, Reddit boards or just common understanding of, you know, Judge Judy cases, things like, oh, well, it wasn't written down, or, oh, well, I didn't make an explicit promise, it only was an implicit promise, or, you know, well, you can't bring up the fact that this was only oral, that's hearsay, but... You explain in the book, that's not a bar necessarily to a judge deciding a constructive trust should be formed. So can you take us through some of those elements that may be surprising to people? The real issue is not so much hearsay as, as the statute of frauds. Um, and in many cases, uh, when you've transferred real property over to somebody else, you could have an oral understanding, an oral agreement, you know, put your hand on the Bible, I'm going to give it back, I'm going to give it back. But uh, the statute of fraud says none of that comes in. For a constructive trust case, though, uh, you can get around the, the statute of frauds. You don't have to worry about whether something's in writing or whether a promise is in writing. Um, it can be all oral so long as the, the judge believes you. I'm going to give one example of, of a constructive trust case was uh, Sharp versus Kosmalski. It's a, it's a New York case. It involves a, a farmer and his uh, trophy wife. I remember when, when I first read about the case many years ago, I thought, oh, the, the farmer is a really, really, really old man. And now I see, looking back on it, he's 56, so that's just one year older than me. So I, I can't say he's a really old man anymore. <laughs> In any event... Um, his first wife died, and then he met 
what I would call the trophy wife, who was a lot younger than him and had a lot more education than him. And they had a relationship and he wanted to marry her, but she didn't want to marry him or she put him off or, or said some sort of excuse for why she wouldn't marry him. So what do men do when they want to get a woman interested if nothing else works is you start giving them gifts. So he gave her one gift after another. Eventually, he gave her the entire farm, uh, transferred it over to her. Very shortly thereafter, the relationship ended. She ended it, and he was left with nothing. So in that case, obviously, they didn't have anything in writing indicating that he had to give it back. And if you were to examine this through the normal case law where there's a breach of contract or something like that, it, it just wouldn't work. Not only was there not a contract per se, but if there was a contract, it was oral. And oral contracts don't work when we're talking about real property. So he had to go about it another way, which was he, he labeled it as a constructive trust. And the court said, when reviewing the entirety of the situation, that there was indeed um, a potential constructive trust here. He, you know, he gave something to her. The understanding, I suppose the, the idea behind it was that there was an implicit understanding that somehow he would get to share in it, the fact that he gave it over to her, that he would get to live there at least for the rest of his life. But, you know, not only did their relationship ended, but, but uh, she kicked him out. So anyway, in that, in that event, it worked. On the other hand, it doesn't work for every single situation. There is, uh, as I put in the book, there is the the case uh, with 50 Cent and his ex-girlfriend. Um, she had done a lot of things for him. They had a very close relationship. And what she had done was taken care of him for all the years when he was up and coming and paid for his tattoos and paid for some jewelry, et cetera. And she even had his 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 baby for him. What happened with them is that he told her, hey, listen, if you buy a house, I promise it will become yours. I promise to transfer it over to you. Uh, I'll pay for it, but eventually it'll become, it'll become yours. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But, uh, and she helped to pick out the house, this fancy mansion. And after she did so, within a relatively short period, um, they broke up. She sued him for a constructive trust, but the court said it just doesn't go that far. Part of the reason for that case was there was no what's called unjust enrichment. It wasn't like she got injured or hurt or anything along those lines. All she did was, in effect, help him to shop for, for a new house. And uh, even though he broke his promise and they had a good relationship, not every aspect was there. So that was not successful. I only bring that up because it's a celebrity and people love to read about celebrities. They do at that. But it also brings up another important element of constructive trusts. It may sound up to this point like we're saying a little bit, you know, this is a magic wand the judge can wave when there is unfairness and they can make the person who was harmed whole. And that is too simplistic. One of the things that you say that there must be is an identifiable piece of property, like an actual asset. Or not, and property can be real estate. It can be a very specific set of funds. Can you go into that element of a constructive trust that you must be seeking something specific? Yes. It's not just that 
I lost money because we had, you know, you, you ripped me off. And, and then here's what doesn't work, for instance, is, is if, if I take um, your money and, and steal it from you in essence, or you, you trust me with your money and I, I take it and then I put that in a pool with a bunch of people's money and then I spend it on something else and spend it on something else and buy something else with it, et cetera, et cetera. Money is, is very fluid. So usually a constructive trust won't work in that kind of context, even if you have all the other elements out there. It can work in very, very specific situations where there's really identifiable bank account, which, shall I say, is for the most part untouched except for the money that I stole from you. Then it can work. If I've taken all the money out and then put it somewhere else, it, it might not work. It's, it's a touchy area. What usually... In, it, it deals with most constructive trust cases deal with uh, real property, though. That's that's the, the real bread and butter for a real estate litigator is, is, is to know that, that a constructive trust may work in, in, in that kind of situation. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our advertisers. When we return, I'll still be speaking with Paul Golden, author of the book Litigating Constructive Trusts, The Last Resort in Fighting Iniquity and Inequity. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm still here with Paul Golden. Paul, so one of the great things about this book is if we have piqued the interest of any attorneys out there who are like, you know what, this is starting to sound like this might be an option in a case that I was really wondering, you know, how I was going to prevail, given that there was a written contract, things like this, you really do try and set out a roadmap um, in kind of a generic case of uh, questions and elements for lawyers to consider. So let's say that you were directly addressing an attorney who now they're kind of interested. What should be the first thing that they consider when they decide, you know, should I look at a constructive trust as a way to advocate for my client? Well, I think the easiest way is, is to, to go through those elements, especially if you're in New York, the elements I mentioned, which is there has to be a, a transfer of something. The plaintiff must have, for the most part, must have once owned it and then transferred it over to somebody else. There has to be usually a confidential relationship. 
the person who received it must have received it unjustly. In other words, they, they received something that they're really not entitled to. They didn't put up anything for it. They didn't do anything for it. And there has to be some sort of promise, either implicit or explicit. Those are the main things for New York. As I was finding out from my research, actually New York is, is a kind of a minority in, in terms of that law. There are other ways that other states will say that constructive trust can also come into being. Like if there's some sort of wrongful act, like there's undue influence, like a lot of pressure was put on, on the person to, to give up their property, or there is some sort of breach of fiduciary uh, duty, then that can also lead to it as well. There's a lot of, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about already was the statute of frauds. There's another benefit for for a constructive trust case is uh, the statute of limitations. And this this ties into what you were just asking is, is you have to ask yourself, when did this happen? The good news for a constructive trust case is it's not simply when did it happen? Uh, when did I give over the property to somebody? I may have given the property over to somebody 50 years ago, but the statute of limitations does not start ticking just because I gave it away 50 years ago. It starts ticking as soon as I find out that the person is refusing to give it back. Um, So you have to ask those kind of questions during a deposition. Uh, I once actually had a deposition about that with with somebody and and the other side, the the plaintiff who was was claiming constructive trust didn't quite understand what the rules were and what uh, about the statute of limitations. So I said to him, you know, so did you ever demand this property come back to you? Did you ever demand it back? And I, I'm just making up a date. Let's say he's, he filed the lawsuit in 2020. And then he said, yeah, I, I demanded it back in, in 2013. That was just, just an example. And here in New York, the, the, the rule is six years from when you demanded it back and when you weren't going to get it back. So since he didn't know the rule, I just sort of, <laughs> during the deposition, I just asked it several more times just to really hammer it in there. For, for when I made my summary judgment motion. Oh, are you sure in 2013, my, my client refused to give it back? Yes, that's exactly right. They refused to give it back in 2013. You say it a few more times like that, and then you put it into a summary judgment motion, and then, and then you win. And speaking of that, let's talk about other defenses that you outlined. So let's say, instead of being the attorney who wants to argue that the judge should declare this a constructive trust, you have someone who is saying your client had this wrongful enrichment and you outline a number of different defenses. One of the interesting ones to me is the innocent beneficiary versus the good faith purchaser. So could you talk about that one a little bit? Sure, that's one of the defenses. Uh, If there's a good faith purchaser, that means that they've actually somehow one way or another have actually purchased the property from somebody. Once they have purchased it, for approximately its value, that takes away the unjust enrichment aspect of the case. You can only get unjust enrichment if someone really has got something for nothing. In theory, uh, this is really just theoretical, but if I transferred it over to Mr. A and I expected him to give it back, but then he gifts it to Mr. B and Mr. B gifts it to Mr. C and, and so on down the line, I might be able to get it back from even the last person. But if in the middle of that, there was ever a time in which someone actually paid real money for it, for for its real value, 
uh, then my chance to get a constructive trust ends. Another one would be um, unclean hands. That is yet another defense. That's when someone has acted in an inappropriate way. There's a debatable issue on this one. For instance, if I owned the property and I was worried that my um, ex-wife was going to get it from me in, in the context of a divorce or I owed some money to somebody else and I didn't want them to know I had assets and then I give it to my brother and then after the divorce is over, after that, the, the creditor has gone away, then I ask my brother to give it back to me and he refuses. There's a question in there and, and states have different policies on this as to whether I've acted with unclean hands. This is a equitable cause of action, a constructive trust. Therefore, if the plaintiff has acted inequitably, for instance, by having what's called unclean hands, um, he may not be able to get it back. But, you know, we haven't talked about uh, the important part of this book was, was that there are jokes in it. There are so many jokes, and you really do take advantage of footnotes. So all lovers of footnotes out there, and I know you exist, uh, <laughs> make sure you read them. They're not just sources. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, when I was in law school and, and afterwards, I had no idea that there was any jokes in law books. And I don't, I, for the most part, there aren't. I once, many, many, many years ago, I, I actually did read a very, very small, tiny little joke in a footnote in a legal book. And I said, oh, you are allowed to write jokes in legal books. So since the uh, ABA didn't prohibit me from doing so, I, I, I threw in as many jokes as I could. It's true. He made this as an enjoyable read as, as possible, even though some of the jokes were, for example, lifted from Steve Martin. You did credit him uh, <laughs> in, your, in your autobiography as an example. Did you, did you recognize that joke? I did not. Oh, okay. No, that I is... apologize. <laughs> right past my head. No, right. but I, I did see that it was funny and that you let everyone know that Steve Martin was the one to really credit with that. Yeah. I, I touched his hand once. That's my big claim to fame. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I waited an hour after after the show was over, and, and then he finally came out. I heard he's, he's a germaphobe, so I, I, I heard he's probably going to have to wash his hands extra hard. Oh, no. <laughs> So let's talk about the special benefits of a constructive trust, why you should go for a constructive trust over something else. And, and one big thing, uh, especially if you're dealing specifically with real estate, seems to be that if you are arguing for a constructive trust, you can get preliminary injunctive relief that could stop someone from selling that piece of property. What are some other special benefits of a constructive trust case? Another one would be if the defendant is in bankruptcy, you might get to go to the head of the line. What I mean by that is that normally in a bankruptcy case, there's a lot of very specific, detailed rules about who goes first, how to split up the, the person's assets and, and who gets what portion and why and whether this person was owed the money first or whether this person was owed it second. These are very, very complicated rules. That's why bankruptcy law is, is so tough and why there's separate bankruptcy judges for these sort of things. But in theory, and this has happened a few times, 
if I claim, for instance, that you have my uh, house that I, I transferred it over to you, but you were supposed to transfer it back, it may be that you'll convince a, a bankruptcy judge that this is really not part of the bankruptcy estate. It really should be deemed separate and apart from the bankruptcy estate, and it was all mine to begin with. In that case, you might not have to wait in line. You might not have to come last. You might not have to wait or, or for, for everything to be split up amongst a, a million people that uh, the defendant uh, ripped off, and I can just get my house back uh, free and clear. Some of the other ones are, are ones we've mentioned already is, is the statute of frauds. I think that's, that's the primary benefit um, to, to a litigator is, is you don't have to worry about the statute of frauds. We're going to take another break to hear a word from our advertisers. When we return, I'll still be speaking with Paul Golden, author of Litigating Constructive Trusts. Welcome back. So, Paul, I have to say, as a non-lawyer reading this book, you know, New York has this four-pronged test, but a lot of this does not seem to be governed by written civil code, although you say there are some states that have some written civil codes about this. It seems like vibes. A lot of it seems like vibes. And you say that courts have at least two goals. One is to provide protection to those who are harmed. The other is to protect their own integrity. Sometimes they cannot do both. I would love to get into that with you. How do you talk a court into realizing there has been this injustice? And if we only follow this actual letter of written law there will be further injustice done or someone will not receive what they should receive. This is not fair. The vibes are terrible. How do you make that argument? Yeah, it, it, everything is case by case. Obviously, the defendant wants to go by, for the most part, the written statutes and try to to stick it in as, as many categories as, as possible as, as to where it should just follow the traditional law, the traditional statute of frauds being applied, et cetera. And the plaintiff has to try to show that the normal statutes uh, simply don't apply. There's one interesting one, which was uh, Latham versus Father Divine, which was is, is actually another New York case um, in which a woman was apparently pushed by a cult or the members of the cult into giving up a, a sizable amount of her property. By the way, Father Divine was the mentor of, of some sorts of, of Jim Jones. He was the one who was famous uh, for the Kool-Aid and the death of, of many people. In any event, Father Divine also had his own cult, and the cult members had had pressured um, this woman very hard into, into giving up her property. But of course, there was no contract, and people are allowed to give gifts. So... The court, ultimately, the Court of Appeals, that's New York's highest court, ultimately said that this was uh, an example of what could be deemed a constructive trust in which um, the the estate could get its property back. I suppose it helped for the plaintiff in that case that it was a cult rather than what some people might call a normal religion. We'd, we'd probably see a, a different result in that case if, if that were, if that's what had happened. Just as you said, you know, it's not super easy to just state in a sentence what a constructive trust is or can do. It is more useful to provide examples. You say that 
you know, a lot of this relies on case law. So it does seem like the first thing to do if you are considering this as a strategy is to look at what cases in your particular state have been successful if you're trying to establish a constructive trust or have been defended against. So can you give me research tips? Yeah, well, I, I suppose that's that's a joke on your end or, or, or way of, of trying to get me to sell my book. Yeah, the, the first research tip would be to buy the book, right? Boom, there you go. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, every state has its own policies. Most of them somewhat follow each other, but but not all of them precisely exactly follow them bit by bit, word by word. In New York, they have these four, I keep going back to New York because that's where I'm from, is New York. They have the four elements, but sometimes, many times, the courts will just say, well, I know those are the four elements, but we don't have to follow those four elements. And then they'll find a constructive trust. And then sometimes you'll see cases where, you know, you might think that this is a perfect case for when they should go around those four elements. And then you'll see the judge who, who basically just doesn't like the defendant possibly, and then just says, no, 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 no. It has to meet these four elements precisely and exactly. And if it doesn't meet these four elements precisely and exactly, that's it. You're done with. Yeah. And again, as, a, as someone who's a non-lawyer, so I've never litigated a case, it is interesting to see that there is this established procedure for something, as I keep going back to it, vibes. I'm reminded Listeners of this podcast may know that I am a hockey fan, uh. and there was a somewhat famous referee call in a hockey match between, I believe, the Washington Capitals and the Dallas Stars, where NHL referee Mike Lego got to the mic after calling a halt, and right when he was supposed to say, you know, oh, so this is the precise thing that this player did wrong, he just shouts, you can't do that! <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I kept thinking about when reading this book. Sometimes you just need the ability to say, you can't do that. I can't necessarily point to, you know, something precise in this legal code that specifically addresses this case and would result in this person receiving justice. But you can't do that. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's, I thought you were going to use the other more famous example in, in law about, I can't say what obscenity or pornography is, but... But I know it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, I know it when I see it, and this isn't it. I had a case of, of that sort where it's not quite clear whether it should have been a uh, constructive trust or not. And it was really just, I felt at the end, it was really just a gut instinct of the judge. But without giving any too many details about it, uh, one relative had purchased, in a manner of speaking, real property from another family member, but he got it for what was deemed a, a dirt cheap price. And then the other family member ultimately wanted it back. My client actually had something really good, which was a contract of sale. It wasn't just that he got a deed, but he got the relative um, to sign off on a contract of sale saying, you know, I am transferring you this property free and clear. You absolutely will own it. You'll own it 100%. And, and here you go. And there is, you know, indication of how much money was being provided, etc. And one would have thought that a contract itself saying when one relative gave it to another, he was really giving it away for real, not as a joke, absolute. One would have thought there's nothing better than that. 
But even in that case, the court felt like, well, listen, the person who was allegedly ripped off was old, was allegedly not in perfect mindset. And also there was some question about whether my client had actually provided even the limited consideration that was described in there. So in a summary judgment motion, the court wouldn't grant summary judgment, indicating there were still some issues. So that's a that's a kind of thing that goes along with what you're saying, is it, it kind of depends on the vibe. And in that kind of case, you just have to do your best to make your client look as clean and perfect and wonderful as possible. And sometimes you don't want to just focus so much on the technicalities that if, if look at the black and white contract, look, it says this, look, it says that. Sometimes that's not enough. You have to really get to the human level of it. And in connection with that, let's talk about the appendices, because this is where I feel like you give some really good nitty gritty pieces of advice for either plaintiffs or defendants and and deposition questions. So this is your time to to tout the appendices. I see. Well, you're just there to to, to help me sell my book. I I can't believe it. I'm just a a pure person. I don't I don't care about money at all. I should mention the ABA, who is my employer, also is the publisher of this book. This was published by the ABA's Real Estate Trust and Estate Law section. But yeah, I, I genuinely think this is an interesting legal issue. I can always turn these down. I accepted this because I think this is an interesting topic. Well, thank you. So does that mean we'll get to do another interview when my when my next book comes out? That'll depend if you interest me. So, <laughs> all right, yeah. My next book is is hopefully is going to be published at some point. is uh, It's on adverse possession, that like squatters' rights. Ooh. In any event, what you were asking about before, yeah, I have pleadings where I have a number of different potential constructive trust cases in which I, I give uh, examples of of how one might try to plead them. I also have sample answers in which I I raised many, many affirmative defenses, all the ones that could potentially uh, come into play. And at the very end, I also put in uh, sample questions for depositions, um, some of them being a little bit obvious, but uh, sometimes it's the obvious ones that, that don't get asked. As anyone who's ever read over somebody else's transcript of a deposition, you start yelling to yourself, why didn't they ask question A or question B. So I have included some trickier questions to ask and some of the more obvious ones as well. So you mentioned you provided sample questions. Are there any specific questions you have that that you think litigators should be especially careful about asking? Yeah, well, there's one example is uh, is a question almost more important for for the defense. And if the case concerns a confidential relationship, and the plaintiff is trying to prove there's a confidential relationship, then you have to make sure as a plaintiff that your client is aware that they have to claim that there's this confidential relationship, you know, this relationship of great trust. I was once defending a case like this, a constructive trust case, and the plaintiff was very, very angry with my client. And, you know, if you read their pleadings, it said, well, that, you know, the two of them had this confidential relationship. And I thought maybe I could get around that one. So I asked one of the plaintiffs during the deposition, I said, isn't it true you actually didn't really trust my client very much? And actually, when I asked that question, the plaintiff 
kind of lit up because they were really, really angry with my clients. And they really wanted to hammer it in how terrible my client was. So then they started to go on and on and say like, yeah, I never trusted him, even from the beginning. No, no, I could never trust him. He was an awful guy. And I knew as soon as I, you know, as soon as I saw his face, he was a totally untrustworthy sort of person. So they really just walked right into that one. Yeah. And then once they have that there, it becomes very, very difficult on their end to prove the confidential relationship, which means it's very hard for them to show that they had any trust and that therefore the property should come back to them. Basically, in that kind of context, as soon as they've given it away and they knew what they were doing, then they can't complain that they that they believed in my client and believed him to give it back because they already said that they knew that wouldn't happen. Well, Paul, if we have intrigued some of my listeners and they want to pick up a copy of Litigating Constructive Trusts, where can they do that? Well, they can go to the ABA website. That's the best way of doing it. I suppose if you can't do that, you could type in my name and Google Paul Golden Constructive Trusts. I suppose it, it would come up right away. My firm's name is Coffee Modica Omira, and they're at cmollp.com. I also have a separate website called uh, mynewyorkappeals.com because uh, I do appellate work for people as well. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for appearing on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be a huge help for you to review on the podcast listening service of your choice and always to subscribe to hear the rest of our episodes. You can reach out to me at books at abajournal.com if you have a suggestion for a future episode or any comments on the episodes you've heard so far.